You are listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 38. What's up, all you SOPs, SLTs, speechies, elocution specialists, or whatever else you'd like to be addressed as? Oh, wait, I need to add one more to this list. What's up, all you SLPAs? That's right, I'm talking about speech-language pathology assistance. You know, after almost 20 years in this field, I've still never met an SLPA. Or at least I can't remember having met one. I ought to be in your 40s. Anyway, on today's show, I am happy to welcome Jennifer Schultz of the Mitchell Technical Institute, MTI, in Mitchell, South Dakota. Jennifer is a speech pathologist and an instructor at MTI, and today we are talking all things SLPA, including, but not limited to, what is an SLPA, the scope of practice of an SLPA, and why one would choose to enter the profession. There are lots of resources out there on becoming a speech-language pathologist assistant, and Jennifer has provided me with a bunch of links, so check out those on the show notes. And if you listen towards the end, I'll give you Jennifer's uh, contact information, as well as uh, you can check out a Facebook group that she has started. Without further ado, I give you Jennifer Schultz. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, just to give the listeners some background, you had you had contacted me after I recently released the episode about getting into graduate school, and yeah. you had suggested an interesting topic, something that I have thought about before, uh, the topic of SLPAs, speech-language mm-hmm. pathology assistance, a yeah. topic of which I know very little about. <laughs> and um, so I was hoping, okay, let's, let's start first by, by talking about, about you about okay. your history as an SLP, how you got into the field, and uh, uh, leading up to your current position. Okay. Well, um, if you want to go way back, I was an S kid when I was little, and so that was probably my first awareness of the field of speech pathology. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, in high school, was looking for something and um, kind of remembered it as a career and really um, was interested in being in the medical side of speech-language pathology. So I tried it out as an undergrad, liked it, um, finished graduate school at the University of Iowa and came back to South Dakota, where I live now, and um worked in inpatient rehabilitation for about nine years and then um, had children and I was driving an hour each way to and from work. And so then I transitioned into a school setting, which was closer to um, my home and did that for about 12 years and did a little bit of private practice stuff on the side and some long-term care and um, Medicaid services and birth to three, and then um, transitioned into my current position, which is an online instructor for a speech-language pathology assistant training program from Mitchell Technical Institute in Mitchell, South Dakota. And just to give uh, folks an idea, Mitchell, South Dakota is, uh, where is that relation to uh, Sioux Falls? 
Yeah, so Mitchell is just one hour straight west of Sioux Falls. So um, in the southeast corner of the state, we kind of have two um, population centers in South Dakota, one in the southeast corner of the state, and then one way over on the west side of the state um, in the Rapid. Rapid City is the name of the city. So if you've heard of the Black Hills or Mount Rushmore, that's on the west end of South Dakota. Awesome. Okay, sure. So you're about also maybe a three-hour drive from Minneapolis, I would say? Oh, no, not quite. We're, um, it's probably about a five, five and a half hour drive from where I am and from Mitchell. So, yeah. All righty. Okay. So you are, okay. So as an online instructor, uh, first let me back up a second. So the Mitchell Technical Institute has an SLP, SLPA program. Do Mm -hmm. our students allowed, is, is it a, is there an in-person, uh, component? Can they do it either online or in-person? Uh, yes. Traditionally? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we do have an on-campus program, so students can elect to do that and, you know, be on-campus for the two-year program. Um, uh, but they can also do the program online, so they can stay where they are living and stay in their same jobs and not have to uproot a family or themselves and complete the program online. And for the people who do this online, they can be living out of state anywhere, correct? They can be, yeah. I mean, almost every state will allow students in their state to enroll in online college programs. There are some states that aren't part of what's called a SARA agreement, um, and then we can't accept students from those state, but states. But for most students, we can. So. Okay, great. Now, okay, so let me back up, and uh, I, I'm sure most listeners out there are familiar with what an SLPA does. Maybe you can give us a brief overview. You bet. So a speech-language pathology assistant is a support person who works under the direct supervision of a licensed and or certified speech-language pathologist. And the job of a speech-language pathology assistant is to extend the services of the speech-language pathologist and to support them in their jobs. So um, they have a variety of clinical and clerical job responsibilities in their scope of practice. Um, Speech-language pathology assistants can provide therapy for for clients, usually students. Most SLPAs are in schools, but um, for clients who have been evaluated and diagnosed by a speech pathologist, the SLPA has to... um, follow the treatment plan that's written by the speech-language pathologist and um, just, you know, perform those tasks that are prescribed and directed by the SLP. Okay, so just to be very sure, they're not uh, performing any assessments? Correct. So, no assessments. Um, Screenings, an SLPA can administer a screening, but then that interpretive piece of the screening, determining whether this is a client that we need to evaluate or monitor or that the client doesn't need any additional assessment, that interpretive piece needs to be done by the speech pathologist. Um, Some other things that are outside of the scope of practice of SLPAs would be writing treatment plans. So in a school system, an SLPA in almost all states cannot write the um, IEP. Um, they can't go to meetings by themselves without the SLP there. So they can't, you know, represent the team 
um, by themselves. Clinically, um, anything that really you know, requires a high level of clinical skill is outside of the scope of practice for an SLPA. So, you know, ASHA specifically states that SLPAs can't do swallowing therapy with a bolus. Um, so they can't, you know, use food or liquid in swallowing therapy. They can talk to clients and family members about feeding strategies, but they can't um, do actual swallowing therapy. They can't tally swallowing um, therapy or screening results. Um, What else is outside of scope of practice? Um, Prescribing AAC devices would be outside of scope of practice. Um, Swallowing evaluations. A lot of times I say, you know, any of those things that you and I didn't feel comfortable doing or weren't competent to do when we came out of grad school are definitely going to be outside of the scope of practice for an SLPA. Right. Now, so I'm just curious because many SLPAs do work in schools, I'm Mm-hmm. I'm I'm guessing that there's lots of situations where uh, you find SLPAs perhaps in um, rural areas, maybe yep. perhaps in a school district that can't possibly be uh, supported by a full-time SLP. Um, and so, you know, what happens? Is there a minimum amount of time uh, that an SLPA would treat or a maximum amount of time before they would have to reconvene with the SLP. I mean, can can they can they just literally come out of an IEP meeting and go an entire year without talking again? No, that's a really good question. So ASHA has guidelines for the supervision of speech language pathology assistance. And, you know, every state is different in terms of um, what they require, what they allow SLPAs to do. But um, so if we just go by ASHA's guidelines, during the first 90 work days that an SLPA is employed, um, he or she needs to have 30% supervision from the SLP, 20% of that needs to be direct supervision. So that means the SLP is supervising therapy or screening services that the SLPA is providing. And then 10% of that is indirect, maybe reviewing videotapes, going through client records and things like that. And then after those first 90 days, um, they need to have a minimum of one hour of supervision weekly, and then as much indirect supervision as is needed to maintain quality of care. So it really falls on the SLP then to determine what that SLPA is competent to do and how much supervision they're required to have after those first 90 days. Um, You know, you asked about could the SLP, you know, write the IEP and then not see them again, you know, for another year. The SLP is required to have direct contact with each client at least um, one time every 60 days. Mm. So, you know, at least once a month or once every two months, excuse me, that SLP would need to be there, you know, for the treatment that the student receives. Yeah. So there's some good safeguards there. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so is, can some of that supervision, by the way, is there is there some leeway in terms of a busy SLP having the opportunity to do that supervision via Skype or some type of telepractice model? Yes. So the you know the the regulations or the guidelines state that um, it can be provided 
by live teleconferencing. So, you know, if the SLP can see the SLPA and the client and they can hear what's going on and they can interact with the SLPA and the student live, um, then that can be used for the supervision. So telepractice, um, that's a great application of telepractice for the SLP to provide supervision. Um, Not only just kind of scheduled supervision, but, you know, like just-in-time kind of supervision, if you will, where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the SLPA is with the student or client and is having a difficult time, you know, maybe achieving a certain articulatory posture, isn't really sure what to do next. Um, You know, if that SLP is available right then, then, you know, could join the session and and work them through that or help them through it. Yeah. And it's nice with uh, today's technology that we can get a hold of each other fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, the one caution about that would be um, just making sure that any, um, telesupervision is done in accordance with HIPAA guidelines and privacy rules and things like that. So. Yeah, I was thinking about that myself. Um, now, okay, so SLPAs, I, I I would assume that they're also just like SLPs are required to do some type of CEU work every few years. Yep. You know, and, and again, every state is different. Like there are some students that don't don't regulate SLPAs at all. And they'll say, well, we don't even employ or have SLPAs. Um, and so then, yeah, no no CEU requirements there. But um, for example, in South Dakota, just like SLPs are required to have 20 hours of CEU time every two years, SLPAs are required to have the same amount of um, you know, CEUs. So uh, typically, you know, states that license or certify or otherwise credential SLPAs will require continuing ed for them, just like they do for us. Yeah. So do SLPAs have any type of affiliation with ASHA as well? Or is that uh, something they're not required or need to do? Yeah, so just like for us, ASHA, you know, membership is not required for SLPs. SLPAs do have the option of becoming ASHA affiliates. So it's a, it's a, an affiliate category. It's not a membership category, but it's an affiliate category with ASHA that's specifically for speech-language pathology assistance. So um, they can join as affiliates as long as they... Um, are supervised by an ASHA certified speech language pathologist. So um, the supervising SLP needs to be an ASHA member and ASHA certified, and then the SLPA can join as an affiliate of ASHA. So they don't have, you know, voting privileges, but they have access to all of the professional resources that we have. Um, like, you know, our ASHA journals, um, they could, um, you know, access those special interest group newsletters that are available. So that's, I think, a really important um, thing that ASHA is doing, kind of, you know, bringing SLPAs into the fold and providing those professional resources so that they are able to, you know, investigate disorders that they're not familiar with and to, to just, you know, continue to educate themselves like we do. Yeah. I think that's a great idea also, because I'm sure a lot of SLPAs, um, might have some interest in becoming SLPs at some point. And mm-hmm. so to maintain that professional relationship with ASHA, I think is uh, probably a yes. good idea. Um, we're talking about some states don't require or don't recognize or have a professional regulation for SLPAs. Is it is, is it the case that SLPAs or whatever entity that they're re- employed by can still uh, bill insurance or government agencies 
if yeah. even if there is no regulation uh, available, or that's something that's just not allowed. Well, um, I'm not really sure how that is tied to, you know, let's say a state that, for example, has no regulation at all of SLPAs. I don't know that that insurance companies would say, well, um, your state doesn't regulate SLPAs, so we will not pay for SLPA services. I do know that Medicare does not recognize SLPA services and does not reimburse for them. Medicaid is different in each state. So um, each state, you know, sets their own medication, medication, Medicaid rules. And um, so in some states, Medicaid will reimburse for SLPA services in other states, they will not. And then of course, insurance companies you know, each one is different and you just need to check with each individual insurance company to see once, you know, what their policy is regarding SLPA services. Yeah. I was thinking that for years, wasn't it the case that uh, the state of Michigan had no uh, professional regulation or or any recognition for speech pathologists? Um, If memory serves. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So I would look at it sort of like, you know, something akin to that situation where even though there was no professional regulation in that state, that they were Mm -hmm. still able to legally build, then it just became up to whichever agency or entity that they were billing to. So that maybe at the state level, you know, like a Medicaid program, it Mm -hmm. wouldn't have worked, but maybe some private insurance, it would have worked. So it might be a hodgepodge. Yeah, and actually in South Dakota, it wasn't until 2012 that we had licensure for speech-language pathologists. So Mm. our SLPs working in education were certified by the South Dakota Department of Education, but speech pathologists working in, you know, healthcare and private practices, they weren't regulated either. So um, I don't know why I didn't think of that, but yeah, yeah, we were in that case. Okay, So. So, so how many SLPAs are there out there? It's really hard to track how many SLPAs there are um, because, you know, ASHA doesn't register them. Every state is different. Um, What I can tell you is that in, I believe it was 2009, um, when ASHA did their membership survey, 42% 42% of school-based SLPs and 32% of healthcare-based SLPs reported that they had one or more SLP support person wow. working in their facility. Um, and according to the, the ASHA website, um, you know, they talk about how there was a pretty big jump in um, SLP, reported SLP use from um, 16 to 14% in 99 and 03 up to, what did I say, 32% in healthcare in 2009, um, and a similar jump in education. So, you know, there was a, a big, cre- big increase, at least in terms of SLPs reporting working with SLPAs. Mm-hmm. So, that's, 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 uh, Impressive. I didn't think it would be, uh, I mean, obviously it doesn't give us a total number, but it gives us an idea at least of how many people right. at least have one. Now that's, that's interesting. Now, yep. I, now, okay. So you're, let's just talk about your program. Um, okay. MTSI, am I getting the acronym? MTI. Yeah. Mitchell Technical Institute. Yeah. MTI. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, your program, how many students do you have currently? Um, right now in the online program, I have, uh, 21 students. I always say it's kind of a moving target um, simply because online students face 
some some interesting challenges. You know, they don't leave home. They don't go to a campus where they're sort of immersed in their program. And many times they're doing online because they have a lot of other stuff going on. So I have some students who go full-time and complete my program in two years. I have other students who do a modified track and complete it in three years. And then I have some students that, you know, are right away they just say, you know, I'm really only able to take, you know, two to three classes a semester and are completing in four years. So um, it it just kind of depends. And then, so we have our two-year degree-seeking students who come out with an associate's degree in speech-language pathology assisting. But just this year, we started a credential program. Um, And this is really kind of, you know, my link to your previous show about, um, you know, getting into grad school and what you do if you don't get into grad school. So this year, we started a credential program, and those students take our Introduction to Speech-Language Pathology Assistant course, a clinical management course, and then um, they complete all of the same kind of hands-on skills competency demonstrations that our degree students do, and then they go in and they do their field work. So it's a 13-credit program over two semesters that they complete, which allows them to get the 100 hours of supervised clinical experience as an SLPA that they need then in most states to get licensed or certified or registered as a speech-language pathology assistant. Oh, that's a nice option. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And we just have a couple of students that are doing that. It's the first year that we've been doing that. Um, But I think it's it's working out well for them. Um, You know, one thing about an undergraduate degree in communication sciences and disorders is that it isn't a. um, it's it's not a, a track that's designed to make you into a clinical professional. It's kind of, you know, the theory behind what we do. And then typically we go into graduate school and that's where we get our hands-on clinical practice. So to come out with a bachelor's degree, um, you know, those students have an excellent foundation, but they haven't really been trained about the ins and outs of you know, what we refer to as therapeutic specific skills. You know, how do I manage behavior um, what about seating arrangements? Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of that stuff. So now, okay, so you, you have 21 students right now. Is there mm-hmm. over the, how long have you been, uh, have you been with uh, MTI right now? I've been with MTI for five years. So this is the fifth year of our online program. And then the on-campus program was started two years before that. So now is, do you have, um, is there a profile of a typical type of students? You know, what draws them to the program? Uh, do you have, are there a lot of, uh, for instance, you know, um, stay-at-home parents who are interested in doing this, just looking for a career yeah. that's easy? Are, are people just drawn and, and maybe not sure they want to become a speech pathologist and they look at this as a stepping stone? Um. I would say that we have, you know, so our traditional students, like out of high school or a couple years out of high school, and I'm still not really sure what I want to do, those students, I think, tend to be more sort of pre-SLP. I'm going to start with this. It's it's only going to take me two years to get through it, and then I can, you know, work for a while and um, maybe explore going into a bachelor's degree program. 
a lot of my students, especially online, are paraprofessionals working in schools. So there's somebody who is working as an education assistant many times in special education. And a lot of them in South Dakota are in areas where there's an identified shortage of speech language pathologists. And then the school identifies them as somebody who, you know, they trust, they know them. And sometimes, in some cases, then those those schools will provide some financial assistance for students to complete the SLPA program for, you know, an agreement to work for them for three years or five years or whatever after they complete their degree. That's a good idea. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, and that's worked well, you know, um, in our states where we are very rural, you know, or have very rural areas, it's really hard to get somebody who's not familiar with that area and isn't used to living, um, you know, in a, in a very rural area to, to move someplace like that and to stay there. A lot of times the best bet is to find somebody who's comfortable living there and then train them to do the work that's needed. Yeah. Now, uh, now for to complete the SLPA program, I, you had mentioned at least for the bachelors folks who come with a CSD degree that they have to do some field work. Yep. Uh, is it the same kind of field work that an SLP that just the straight program has? Um, similar, but not exactly the same. So, like in a, a graduate SLP program, um, you know, at least around here, typically students do like two 12 week placements, one in kind of a pediatric or, you know, educational setting, and the other in more of a, a healthcare adult type setting. Um, we require one eight week full time field work placement. Um, you know, typically those are done in um, education settings in school districts. Um, occasionally we'll have somebody who will do sort of a private practice, more birth-to-three based um, setting. But a lot of times that includes at least some school contracts. ASHA requires 100 hours of supervised clinical experience as a speech-language pathology assistant, um, or that's what their guideline is. I guess they don't require it. But most states then require that for licensure or certification. We say eight weeks of full-time placement because, of course, not every hour that the SLPA spends there is going to be some sort of, you know, clinically supervised documentable hour. And, you know, in terms of a program, our goal is not just to get them the minimum number of hours that they need of experience, but to make sure that they have a pretty comprehensive um, clinical experience and that they feel like they got enough hours in to, um, you know, feel at least a beginning level of competence when they go into their first employment. Yeah. And it's not just about the quantity, but also the quality and developing relationships right. with potential mentors and yep. and whatnot. Now, yeah. on, the, on your website, I talked to you about this last time that, uh, or when we talked on the phone prior to this conversation, mm-hmm. that there is uh, pretty much no problem finding a job after uh, these folks graduate. Yeah, so there are jobs out there. Um, in South Dakota, you know, probably the challenge in finding a job especially if it's an online student, is that person is living and is rooted in one area. So, you know, like any job, even like a speech-language pathologist's job, um, the job might not be open in your neck of the woods right when you graduate, but a lot of times those graduates will work as a paraprofessional and then will work into an SLP, um, SLPA position. Um, but there are always jobs job openings available, um, you know, in South Dakota and I'm sure in other states too. So. Yeah. It's about how flexible they are, what their life situation is. 
Right. Yep. Yeah. Now, now you've been there for five years. Have you? Do you keep uh, data or track of your alumnus, alumni, and uh, in terms of uh, satisfaction where they are now? Um, feedback about the program. Oh, that's a good question. I don't have anything right offhand about you know like statistics in terms of. You have any yeah. any anecdotal information about them? Anecdotal information. Most yeah. uh, the most people uh, look back fondly on the program and have uh, you know. Yeah. Um, so what I can share with you anecdotally is that um, the students go out feeling very well prepared. Um, you know, as you can imagine, just sort of like we were when we were in school, there are times when um, my students are probably upset with me thinking, you know, I don't need to do this um, to to do the job that I want to do kind of thing. You yeah. know, like, so we'll, we'll train them about IEPs and different education plans. And sometimes the response I get is, well, why do I need to do this? I'm not going to write an IEP. But I've had those same students who really did give me a hard time about that come back later and say, I am so glad that I had to do that because I sat in the IEP meeting with my SLP and she asked me to find something for her and I was able to turn to it and find it. So, um, yeah, you know, and and the, the graduates that we have have been very happy in their SLPA positions. I think that they find it to be a very rewarding position. Um, one thing that SLPAs tell us is that they really enjoy just getting to do the therapy, which sometimes is kind of one of the the fears for SLPs is that they're going to have to do all of the paperwork um, and the testing and stuff, and then the the SLPA ends up doing all of the therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I think every situation is different. I think one of the things that's really important about adding speech-language pathology assistance to our um, mix of professionals in speech-language, in the field of speech-language pathology, is that there are a lot of things that speech-language pathologists do and get paid a decent salary to do that really don't require the high level of skills that a speech-language pathologist has. So, you know, for example, again, going back to education, you know, you work to establish articulation placement for a specific sound, um, and you might have to, you know, just about stand on your head to get that done. But Mm -hmm. once that placement is there, then what that client really needs is repeated review and drill. And that's not something that requires necessarily a high level of clinical acumen, if you will. So that's something that can go to the SLPA. So using an SLPA allows the SLP to decide what are the most important things in my caseload for me to do? What are the things that require the highest level of skill? And it allows the SLP to do what we call... um, Uh, functioning at the top of your license or working at the top of your license. So, um, you know, um, evaluating that uh, client who's nonverbal and needs an AAC device and selecting that device and getting it set up and programmed, um, those are things that maybe take a lot of time and definitely take a lot of skill and allows the SLP more time to do those things. Mm -hmm. All good stuff. Now, um, I wanted to ask you i think one of the last questions i had you're you're saying all this and i'm thinking in the back of my head wouldn't it be nice to have an slpa in my program <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it <laughs> yeah. did you spend an hour filing last week 
Oh, you, know? you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, or or that stack of you know that stack of papers. I mean, you know, every year I had to go through all of my files, and I kept um you know my files on my student up, students up in my office, um you know for three years or until the file drawer got full, whichever came first, and then I had to go and I had to pull those out, and they went into a secondary storage area, and then they stayed there until seven years later when I was sure Medicaid wasn't going to come back and question my service. <laughs> And then right. I had to shred them. But I, you know, even you know, I have a number of kids in my program. I work in a school, and you know, I, I set up um, sort of protocols. I find, you know, especially for the kids working in speech sound disorders, and I'm thinking, my, you know, I, I often give, I ask the uh, teachers in the paras, could you help out just by for five minutes a day? Mm-hmm. And I, I think, and sometimes it's successful, and sometimes it's not. I think that the the paras just feel like very squeamish about it even if yep. you know of course I, I i guess i i i overestimate uh what i think and how how simple it would be to do but i think they're so afraid mm-hmm. of making a wrong move or not modeling the way that i did right and so i'm like that would be a perfect situation if i had an slpa to kind of yep. fill in those gaps mm-hmm. there yeah yeah you know i think sometimes that you know, we've done what we've done or what we do for so long that we think, well, you know, this isn't rocket science. Anybody can do this. And I remember having that feeling when I went into my school program that, um, you know, the classroom teachers were asking me about articulation. Well, it doesn't sound quite right, but they didn't know what was wrong with it. And I was kind of like, oh, that's easy. But it's easy because we've done it so long. I would say, you know, it's not rocket science, but it is speech science. Um, And, you know, having somebody else there who has that background and training in, um, you know, place, manner, and voicing of speech sounds, again, it seems pretty basic to us, but you're right, the the traditional paraprofessional doesn't have that information, and our classroom teachers don't either. So it is difficult for them to follow through on some of those therapeutic things that we want some practice on. Sure. Now, okay, so what I wanted to leave off on was, SLPAs, this dates me, I guess, but uh, the field came up in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, actually, SLPAs have been around for quite a while. Um, We know that SLPAs have been used and there have been regulations for SLPs since the 1970s. And ASHA's first guidelines came out in 1969. Now, In the the 90s, we probably did hear more about SLPAs because in the early 2000s, then ASHA put together a program where they were going to register SLPA training programs, um, and they were also going to register SLPAs. But that started like in 2002, and then in 2003, the board of directors for ASHA decided to drop the program mostly because of financial reasons. Mm. So then we sat with really no no input from ASHA. I mean, they still had their guidelines, but they didn't have any sort of way for SLPAs or SLPA training programs to affiliate with ASHA until 2012, 2011, when they started the associates program. Wow. But, you know, I remember the discussion uh, the, the discussion that um, sticks out of my mind from back then in the late 90s was really about watering down our roles and the, the blurring yeah. of the lines and and uh you know where do our services start and their services you know end and mm-hmm. it was 
it was it was this pecking order thing, and I think that th- those kinds of arguments really haven't um, gone anywhere. And I'm guessing that what's happened is that uh, those fears were never realized that things are just okay, and that we're both working side by side, and everything's good. Yeah, and I th- I think in most cases, um, you know, that's that is the truth. Um, I you know also probably assume that I maybe have some of a skewed perspective since I am in favor of SLPAs and their use, and probably I'm not always the first person people re- will report to when they are um, not in favor of SLPAs. Although you know sometimes I hear that too. But um, you know what what I always say is you know think of a profession. A physician has a physician's assistant. A nurse has a nursing assistant, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. They've got assistants. Teachers in the classroom, they have paraprofessionals as their assistants. And so we are surrounded by all of these healthcare and education um, professions that see the need for an assistant to the professional. And I don't think that the field of speech language pathology is any different. Um, Again, you know, there are things that, um, yes, we are trained to do and we can do, but they don't require um, necessarily the high level of skill of a speech language pathologist. And so to have um, a colleague who can work alongside you and um, provide those services so that you can focus on improving the quality of care for all of the clients that you and your SLPAC together to me only seems reasonable. No, I, I would totally agree. Um, so let's uh, get to information here. Where can people find more about your program? Okay, so um, our program is at www.mitchelltech.com all one word, dot edu. Um, and you can email me at jennifer.schultz at mitchelltech.edu. And um, I have some information, you know, my contact information, program information, along with some website links for ASHA's um, website and their information about SLPAs and information for supervisors. And then a couple of jobs, salary and statistics websites. So if I could send those to you, yeah, that'd if you be would want to post them on the website, that all of that stuff will be there then. Yeah, I'll link to all of that. And Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. You bet. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, take care. Yep, you too. Bye-bye. All right, thank you so much, Jennifer, for being on the show today. For those of you wishing to get in touch with Jennifer Schultz, you can do so. Jennifer.Schultz at MitchellTech.edu. She also has a Wikispaces pages, JenniferSchultz.Wikispaces.com. Her personal Twitter handle, at HawkeyeSLP. Twitter profile for the SLPAs, at Asha underscore associates. And you can also look her up on the Speech Language Pathology Assistance Facebook page. Just do a search and I'm sure you'll find it. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any show suggestions, you can send them my way at Jeff at conversationsatspeech.com. That's about all I have for today. I will see you all next time. Thanks again for listening.